Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. I can't think of a better way to wrap up Black History Month than a visit from the executive director of the African American Museum of Nassau County, Mrs. Josetta Pierce. So whether you're about to hit the road for an early run, preparing for sunrise service, or maybe just relaxing on a Sunday, Thanks for joining us. And make sure you've got a pencil, paper, and a pen to jot down a few notes or maybe some phone numbers. We'll begin this edition of New York Sports and Beyond after this time out on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond. I'm Larry Hardesty. It began in February 1968 as an exhibit at Nassau Community College. It's now got its own building, the African American Museum of Nassau County. To take us through the journey that saw that exhibit rise to a museum is the executive director of the museum, Mrs. Josetta Pierce. Mrs. Pierce, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning to you. Well, good morning. Thank you for giving us a couple of minutes to talk about your fabulous museum. Mrs. Josetta Pierce, tell me how we got started in this uh, endeavor. Well, actually, the museum started in uh, 1968 over at Nassau Community College. Um, a professor, the, uh, Professor Leroy Ramsey, it was Black History Month in 1968. He had a collection at home, and he asked if he could display it at the college, and they allowed that. But when he went to take it down in March, uh, the black students on campus, there weren't that many, but they did say, um, why are you taking this down? This is the only thing on campus that we can relate to. So he wound up leaving it there. And shortly thereafter, the county got in touch with him. Um, Russell Service, he was one of their... First, I don't know if he was the very first, one of the first uh, black officials in, in the Nassau County, um, le- I think it was in the legislature. But in any case, he came and he said, listen, what's going to happen to this stuff, you know, in case anything happens to you? Are your children interested? And he said, ah, they'll probably sell it all or, or give it away. He said, well, why don't we make it an institution? The county's interested in creating a museum in the community. So uh, can we take it over? And that way, you know, it'll be here long after you're gone. <laughs> and it, it was uh, prophetic because he is gone and the museum is still flourishing. And they first moved it to a, uh, a storefront on Main Street over where they used to be called the Bus Terminal Building. And I had a little, just a little storefront kind of a museum. And then in 1984, they per- the county purchased the uh, building at 110 North Franklin Street. And they converted it into a museum, and it has been there in that place since 1985. It opened in September of 1985 at uh, the current location. That's ex- excellent. So now, how do you and your husband become involved? Well, in the late 90s, I'm a certified uh, genealogist, mm-hmm. and we would go to the museum and do genealogy for the community. They gave us a little office that we could sit in and people could come in and sit down and get their family tree done. And over time, um, we were there like once a week. And uh, when about 19, no, sorry, 2011, uh, the county asked that we, you know, since we're there a couple of days a week anyhow, would we, uh, you know, manage the museum? And we said, okay. And we have been there since February of 2011. Uh, just managing the entire museum, not just the uh, just not just the uh, genealogy department. Well, I'm going to start there because we're going to talk a lot about the museum, all the great exhibits, the jazz part, the, all that mm-hmm. stuff. But I want to mm-hmm. talk with you about the uh, the uh, genealogy part of it and the challenge in, you know, 
Joyce said they're trying to help us find and trace back when oftentimes uh, documents were missing or mislabeled or just not in existence. Well, most people can find something. It's very simple. It's a simple process. All we need, well, I should say it's easy if, you're, if your heritage is here in, in, in America because uh, people from the islands, it's a little more, it takes a little more time. Uh, and that's because you generally have to send to the island to request the birth record, death record, that sort of thing. But our census is a really great tool for those of us who have, you know, our ancestry is mostly in this country. Uh, once we get the name of a grandparent or a parent who was alive in 1940, uh, and we can find that person, we can travel all the way back. Uh, slavery is an issue. Once you get to the point, uh, we were listed by name on the census ever since 1870. Uh, prior to that, just the uh, head of the household would be listed, and, and you had to be free to be listed. So that's the era where it gets a little bit sticky, but we found many people who were able to get the slave record. They get the, the list that the slave owner turned in, uh, uh, listing all of his possessions when he had a will to write. My husband found his um, family listed on, in the last will and testament of the slave owner. He died in 1861, and uh, before he passed, he listed everyone's name. But the real weird thing, it wasn't weird, it was very common, I, don't, I shouldn't say it was weird, that he was the father of all of his uh, slaves. <laughs> He never. His family was in a, wasn't a slaveholding family. Um, he was an attorney, and in payment, someone gave him this 20, 25-year-old uh, slave, a female. Mm-hmm. And he um, had children with his wife, and he had children with her. And Julius is descended from her and from the slave uh, woman's children. And he listed them, and he even we have the value of each particular kid that they had. Um, very interesting stuff. I mean, the by this time, the original slave, Celia, she was about 60 years old, and she was blind. And her value was absolutely zero because she wasn't capable of making any money. They couldn't make money off of a blind and sick old woman. But the younger boys, they were working, her children, they were worked like from, I think the highest was 1,200 and went down to like 700 for a, a young 12-year-old boy. So, I mean, it depends. You know, you just, everybody has to search because you, 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 ha- you can't have low expectation because a lot of times you come up with some really good stuff. What has been for you and your husband as you help people trace and get answers? What's that like? Obviously, it's great for them, but what is that like for you? What, what, what's it the is, response? It what's is, the it is more than rewarding. Do? It is the greatest thing that I ever undertook. I've had a couple of jobs in my lifetime, but... I, I never got the um, the sense of accomplishment and, and, and just feeling good for people. I mean, we have people that sit in the office with us and they cry, they laugh. They, it, it's just wonderful to see what a difference it makes to a person when they can identify themselves to that level, when they know who their ancestors were, you know. And even in doing this research, there are many people who come in who don't even know the name of their father. Their father, not their great-grandfather, not their great-great-grandfather. They're looking for that kind of information. And we have been able to assist in that as well. It's difficult. Uh, just about a 
last year was that uh, the uh, adoption records and those kinds of things have been made available to people. Before, everything was locked down. If you were uh, offering that somebody adopted, you couldn't find that out. But now they're, uh, they are releasing the birth mother's cert- certificate because when you go through the process of, of adopting one of these children out of these foster homes and orphanages, they give you a brand new, they used to give you a brand new certificate with your, your name as parent. And uh, you couldn't, the child could never get the identity of their, you know, their biological parent. But now that's all been open and it's released. It, you know, you have to definitely prove that, you know, you got to bring a lot of ID and, uh, you know, so that they know they're giving it to the right person. Mm-hmm. But it's all being possible now because it, it, it really changes the whole mindset from, no, from being a person who doesn't know their history, doesn't even know their own father's name. It is a bit depressing for most people. Yeah. But when they find out, it is like a whole new world opens up. And when they meet the person, that's even better. Mm. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Now, how, what attracted you to the field of genealogy? Um, my my husband, when I first married him, he was very much aware who his grandmother. He would talk about he had property in North Carolina, and it was a farm, and he told me all about how FDR sent his mother a document or uh, sent the local sheriff or somebody out that they could not take her home from her just because we were in a depression, et cetera, et cetera. And they gave her back her farm and they moved from the city to the farm. He had all this history. And I'm saying, my goodness, whoa, this is really <laughs> peculiar. And my grandfather was Irish. And he was like, uh, he was disowned by his family when he married my grandmother. So I knew I would never find anything about him, you know, because I didn't, I didn't even know his mother's name. I didn't know his brother's name. I just knew him. But when I started doing the research, lo and behold, it all opened up, and I traced him all the way back to the earliest person I found was born in 1795 in Cookstown, County Tyrone, Ireland. <laughs> and on the black-hand side, I was able to trace. My family came to New York in the late 1700s. And they have been in New York ever since, born in Virginia, but the earliest relative was born in 1799, and uh, he was on the 1840 census. So wow. it's a, it's been a trip. You know, I never thought I could find anything, you know, because I never thought about talking to my grandfather about his family, and I never thought, well, my grandmother either. I never, we didn't have that conversation. Whereas Julius used to sit at the foot of his grandma and ask questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he had a little something, you know, he had a little trail to follow, but we had nothing, but I, I really lucked out. And there's so many people that do come, they, they automatically say, I don't know anything about my family and you're not going to find nothing about me. We weren't famous. We were not in, we're not on any documents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but you know, when you get to looking, <laughs> yeah. you can find it. You, you know, it's so funny. Uh, because my family, uh, Josetta, there was a, my great great grandmother had everybody's birthday in a Bible. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know. So, so we kind of were able to trace and keep up with everybody. But you know, uh, unfortunately, at funerals, we turn around and we always say to folks that you know what, take this time to speak with you. Don't don't make it that it has to be a funeral that everybody gets together. Exactly. Then, yes. Now that we've connected, let's keep the, this up. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and talk Mm -hmm. to the young people so the history continues. So, indeed, if there is a question or missing piece, if they come to you or somebody else, you know, it narrows it down a little bit. 
Absolutely. And, and one of the issues that we have is the older people do not want to discuss things like, you know, well, grandma wasn't really married to grandpa or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and, I, yeah. and I have to tell people, you know, like they'll say, I'll say, but when was your grandmother born? Oh, she's alive. She's still alive, but she doesn't want to talk about this. So I said, well, you know, uh, Julius will call her. I will call her. Nobody cares who was married or who wasn't in those days. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It was difficult to, yep. to try to get married for us, you know. It wasn't the, it's such a, a snap, you know, that you could just, you you might be separated by one thing or another, and you just don't mm-hmm. get around to that. But the whole, pro, the whole, the most important thing is the child. You have to think about the child. How do, how would you feel if you didn't know your your, your mother or your father's name or whatever? Or you, you, yeah. Who cares whether they were married or not? That's my mother. That's my yeah. father. You know, yeah. you don't have to apply these these moral issues. You know, all these moral principles you can't hold them to it because they had a whole different life than what we have today. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a lot easier to be moral. <laughs> We're not trying to judge. We just need the information. That's all we need. <laughs> <laughs> Josetta Pierce is my guest. She's the executive director of the African-American Museum of Nassau County. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond. When we return, we'll talk about some of the exhibits and unknown gems of information you'll find at the African-American Museum on Nassau County. That's next on 98.7. ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue our discussion with the executive director of the African American Museum of Nassau County, Mrs. Joyceta Pierce. Joyceta, let's talk about the museum. Now, obviously, the genealogy is part of that, but you've got exhibits, you've got artwork, you've got sculpting, you've got music, you've got everything there. Take us through it. Well, <clears throat> what we do, we don't have artifacts. Uh, one of our issues we found out really early on when we started working with the museum was that just by tradition and by culture, African-Americans don't actually save the little things that most some other people do. For instance, if your grandmother passed away and you were going through her belongings and you saw that big, ugly skillet that's been burned black and crusty, mm. you're going to throw that away and buy some aluminum. <laughs> Yeah. So all these little artifacts, maybe the little pot belly stove that used to sit in the living room, you know, you're going to throw that out and get a new one. You know, uh, the the little blankets that she crocheted or knitted, oh, they're old, they're, they're, they don't look so great, Let's, they're kind of getting raggedy, let's just chuck all of this stuff. So there are not a lot of artifacts available. So what we concentrated on, what we did, and we made it a point to focus on the hidden history. The, the mission of the museum is to you know, to expose the culture and traditions of African-American families and people. So um, that means that we don't actually have a lot of material, or any really, about um, Harry Tubman, Frederick Douglass. These are the things that the people are aware of is out in the public. Um, the schools t- used to teach it. Now they don't teach history any longer, but when they were teaching history, most people heard about these very famous people. We concentrate on the hidden history because that is where our most positive images are, our most positive people, uh, the, the people who would influence our children if they only knew about them. We, yeah. are, you know, we know about our wonderful heroes, and some of us have parents and grandparents who participated in the civil rights movement. So all of that is right here at our fingertips. But, for instance, everybody knows what Rosa Parks did in Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery is a very small place. Uh, no one was very much aware of it until she did what she did. But if you ask a New Yorker who desegregated public transportation in New York City, 
they go blank. No, nobody I've, I've met has known the answer to that question when I ask. And it was Elizabeth Jennings. Elizabeth Jennings was a rich black woman. That's why she's not in the history book, because that's too positive for us to deal with. They allow us one millionaire in our history, and that is Madam C.J. Walker. They don't talk about uh, any other any other Africans who uh, African Americans who were wealthy. And this is one right here in New York City. Give me a break. She was a wealthy woman. She jumps on a trolley, and the conductor and she did that. Let me tell you, 101 years before Rosa Parks, jumps on a trolley, and the conductor says, "You can't ride." She's with her girlfriend, and they're going to church. She's she's volunteers to be the church organist, and he pushes them off. Her girlfriend gets scared. But she runs to the next stop and she jumps back on. Now she's all in his face. What do you mean I can't ride? This is public transportation, right? And he says, yeah. Well, they argue back and forth. And this time he pushes her off again. But this time he throws it on the other side where this slush and, 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 and manure and all of this stuff is out there. She dusts herself off, goes to the church, tells her father. He says, we're not going to accept this. We're going to sue. They wind up suing. She wins her case. They get a, he gets a young white lawyer to represent her. He's only 24, and it's his first case of lawyering. But he wins the case. She goes on to be a school teacher. He goes on to be the 21st president of the United States, Chester Allen Arthur. But who knows that? That's something that should be in history. But here's a president connected to a black story. Why don't the black people know that story, you know? That's only one example. I mean, we got Sarah Rector, the richest little colored girl in the world. Nobody knows her. No, nobody ever heard of her. Her exhibit is going to open in March for um, Women's History Month because everybody knows the famous people who are going to be lauded during Black, you know, during Women's History Month. But nobody ever tells the story of Sarah Rector. She had oil wells pumping out 2,500 barrels a day. Wow. <laughs> but that's the kind of information we're bringing. Uh, we love stories that relate to Long Island, like our Jasmine. They were not all born. Uh, I don't think any one of them was born um, on Long Island, but they came here to live, and that was important. So we have one from Massapequa, Rockville Center, um, you know, it's, it's Glen Cove. Uh, they found Long Island to be the best place that they could live, you know, they, they, they were making money at the time and they bought homes here and they, uh, I'm, Long Island worked for them. And a lot of them spent a lot of time in that iconic Sonny's place out in Seaford. Uh, one of the people that we have in the exhibit, Billy Mitchell, he was the house band there for like 30 years. <laughs> really? But I don't know how many, you know, I don't know how many black people are aware of that, you know? Mm-hmm. When you put the, the what what led you to take this this tone as far this direction as far as making the museum specifically in, specific to that type of people that you should know that you don't know about be it art be it entertainment be it whatever I observed that when I told a story to someone about some spectacular. Thing like Sarah Rector or Elizabeth Jennings, the attitude would change. I could actually see that this person was feeling very good about having that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I knew mm-hmm. that I had, I had never been interested in fiction too much. 
I mean, I read, you know, all the little stories that you're supposed to read, Little Women and all of that stuff when you're a kid. But I was much more interested in what happens in the life of real people. And I spent a lot of time reading up on stuff like that. And I knew that I knew a lot of stuff that people just didn't talk about. So even in the museum right now, I have a whole file cabinet filled with stories we haven't had a chance to even pull up yet, you know. Um, this is a little bit of an aside, but just for an example, mm-hmm. the play Les Miserables, it yes. was criticized. See, my whole family is in, in everybody's in show business but me. <laughs> my brothers, <laughs> my mother, my father, my grandfather on both sides, my grandmother uh-huh. on one side, my great-grandparents are all in show business, you know. So I knew a lot of these stories. In Les Miserables, there was an issue one time, and the black entertainers were complaining that, you know, there's so many Broadway plays out there, but they don't use black people. They don't even, they don't even go for auditions when there's an opportunity because they know they're not going to get hired. And the response was, there were no black people in France and during the time of Les Miserables, so why should we have black people in the, in, the, in, the, in the play? But it turns out, when I did the research, who the greatest swordsman in France was a black man. <laughs> Mm. He defeated everybody. He lived there. He was the son of, of, of a slave woman and a white Frenchman. He, he was born in, on one of the islands, and uh, his father was interested in him and sent him back to France for education, and he grew there. He was a cavalier, you know, that kind of thing, and he would get into these matches, and he actually beat all of the opponents and was the greatest uh, uh, swordsman in France. He even went back to, uh, he went to Haiti, when um, Le Toussaint was putting his little uh, revolution together there, and he went to fight with him even. But um, it, it's just those kinds of things I was always interested in, and I just did the research. The research is sitting in the drawer. What I do, I convert it into panels. We have a great mm-hmm. graphic designer there, and he uh, lays out the background, and he, he takes the pictures that I give him, and he, sets up, he makes these panels, and then we have them framed, and we hang them on the wall, and that's what we have instead of actual artifacts. We tell stories through the panels that hang on the wall, and we make mm-hmm. it brief because we just want to give people enough so they understand what's going on, and then if they want to do more research, they can. We we can even give them the the, the resources that we use because we have to, you know, we have to research everything to make sure it's not just somebody's crazy writings. You know, we we document everything mm-hmm. before we make an exhibit. And we just encourage, and and these young people. When I go there, huh, we have an exhibit on math. I, as soon as I get a, a class of young people, students, I say, uh, who likes math here? Did anybody do, do good at math? Well, what's your favorite subject? Is it math? Oh, no, math is my worst subject. Oh, my God. Oh. I said, how can you be so, you know, he's, one kid said, I hate math. I said, how can you hate something that you gave birth to? What? They don't want, they bend their eyes open. I tell them about the little story about the pyramids. They said Africans could not have built the pyramids because you have to know that A squared plus B squared equals C squared to create perfectly formed right angles on the bricks. When you do that and you push these perfectly formed bricks together, you can't get a hair between them. It's like like if you could imagine taking two children's blocks and pressing them together, you can't get a hair between them. And that's what's so remarkable about the pyramids. There's no mortar, there's no cement holding it together. And they said, oh, no, Pythagoras came up with that theory in the year 200. The pyramids are thousands of years old. They, they, and this is a really crazy part. They say aliens came to Earth and taught the Africans how to build a pyramid. <laughs> really? 
Now, they yeah, didn't right. discuss how they got here, where they came from, or nobody kept notes about that. They didn't uh, tell us what kind of fuel they used to get here or what kind of spaceship it was, so maybe we could make one. They didn't tell us about a cell phone or a refrigerator. <laughs> they told us about how to build a pyramid. Well, that that we debunked that theory. The Labombo bone, a, a young we, we used to have a, a, a young woman there named Fatima White, and I put her on some research every once in a while. She came up with this. The Labombo bone is thirty seven thousand years old. It was during it goes back to the days of the hunter gatherers, and we have proof of the actual bone has prime numbers carved on them. This is hunter-gatherers who you generally see in the movies running around with a loincloth on and a spear and running through something that looks like a jungle, but there's no jungles in Africa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, right. they, right. they would get these bones of an animal, cut them to a certain length, four bones. Each one of the bones would have these prime numbers carved on them, and they would slide the bones back and forth in order to calculate. Chinese observed this process later. And they decided it was easier to have a bar and slide beads back and forth. That's how they created the abacus. It was based upon the Labombo bone. Mm. And that's 37,000 years ago. Of course we knew A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Because we then found a book. The book is called The Rhymed Papyrus. Rhymed is the the, uh, Englishman who purchased this book from someone who found it in a tomb in, in uh, Egypt, and he donated it to the British Museum. It was signed by the author. Uh, um, his name was Ahmez, and it was dated 1650, in our terms, 1650 B.C. He wrote a book of problems, 400 pages of problems, in 1650 B.C., and he in it he wrote that, a squared plus B squared equals C squared. He also wrote the circumference of a circle is equal to 3.4 into infinity. Now, Archimedes reads this. He writes a book in Greek, and he gets to be the father of this, the, that theory about the, the circumference wow. of a circle. Hmm. Uh, and Pythagoras, he reads it. He writes a book about A squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's all been taken away from us. And those kids are talking stuff when they walk out of the museum. <laughs> yes, they are, and they have a new sense of and, and they have a new sense of purpose and pride about themselves, Joyceta, as well. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. That's why I love it, and it just keeps me going. At eighty-one, I should be retired somewhere on a beach. <laughs> yeah, but you, you you'd be miserable because you wouldn't be around the kids would. and the work that you're doing. You are so <laughs> you'd be right. miserable. So I said, the Pierce is my guest. He's the executive director of the African American Museum of Nassau County. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. Just said, uh, holding holding class this morning on the show. Uh, tell us where the museum is and uh, the website and everything else before I've got. And I got some more questions about the museum, but give us the, the location and, in, and information. Okay, right. we are at 110 North Franklin Street, corner of Jackson, in Hempstead, New York. Um, we do have a small parking lot that holds maybe six cars, well, maybe five, because we always have another car parked there. And But we're right across the street from the municipal parking lot that's right off of Jackson. So it's no problem, you know, if people come in. Of course, there's no, you know, we don't, the, the, the need is you don't have to feed on the weekends. So you can either park on the street or you can go to the municipal parking lot. If you come there early and there's nobody else around, you can park in our parking lot. 
<laughs> and for buses, they, they have a sign that on the side of our museum on Jackson, no one can park for a good, but a one quarter, actually the length of the whole museum is all reserved just for the buses that come up with children or, or visitors to the museum. So it's not too bad, you know, and it's right around, let's say it's like two and a half blocks from the train station or the bus station. Okay. So it's very easy to get to. All right. And your website? TheAAMuseum.org. All right. TheAAMuseum.org. And that has all the information. And we're going to talk about donations in a second as well. Mm-hmm. When we return, royalty and how it goes back in black history. That's next on this edition of New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's conclude my discussion with Mrs. Joycetta Pierce. She's the executive director of the African-American Museum of Nassau County. Joycetta, tell me about the Black Royals. The Black Royals, um, we started with, we were so impressed with the fact that we found some information about this black queen called Charlotte. When we sent the Declaration of Independence to England, we sent it to the attention of King George III. And they tell us a lot about him. He lost his mind due to a disease called porphyria. And he was institutionalized for a total of 12 years. And his wife had to rule in his stead with the little prince regent who was a young boy. And not too much about her. Why? He's married to a black woman. Her name is Sophia Charlotte of mecklenburg strelitz born in Germany. And the grandparent, Charlotte, is the grandparent of Victoria and Albert. Now, she's black, descended from Margarita de Costa Isusa. They they were Portuguese and African. Now, all of her children, she has has 15 children total. Two died in infancy. When George III died, her son George IV took over. When he died, his brother William took over. So two died, two became kings of England. All the other 11 married into European royalty, into Russia, Germany, France, Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal, Norway, Sweden, Belgium, and Holland. Every royal house from Spain to Scandinavia is black, descended from Charlotte. Amazing. Then when we took Charlotte, looked at her background, she goes back to William the Conqueror. They have been black since 1066 the Battle of Hastings, and he took over, you know. And Philippa, she was, she's between, uh, William the Conqueror is uh, Philippa's grandfather, mm-hmm. and then Charlotte comes much below her. Philippa was r- ruling in the 1300s. Uh, and at the time, all of this stuff was going on. There was no racism and all of this stuff. But when it did raise this ugly head, England tried to hide their black past. And they started saying that Charlotte is a very fair complexioned woman. I mean, if you're talking to my mother, my mother would call her high yellow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Philippa was a brown princess, <laughs> a queen rather. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they did with her was unbelievable. They painted her face white and he put a glove on her hand because her hand was showing. But the funny thing was, when they told the artists, you know, get those brown ones and, and paint them white because we're not going to have this uh, be exposed any longer. And um, what he did, he only painted her face white and put a glove on her hand, but he didn't paint her arms. So her arm is up there in the painting, still brown all over. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, I, I mean, murder will out every time, but we just have to keep looking. And, and, and Philippa, she ruled during the 1300s. And then we went all the way back to 1066. We wanted to know what ethnicity William the Conqueror was. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't, you know, nothing that we had access to describes his ethnicity or his race mm-hmm. or his complexion. So we really don't know about William, but we know that his, um, you know, one of his female descendants, she married a Kuman man. A Kuman is black Asian. And from that point down, all of them have the sub-Saharan African gene. And um, as, as far as William is concerned, we do know what his mother's name was. His mother's name was Haleva. Now, his father was called Robert the Beautiful. Oh. And pardon me, but I don't think many white men call themselves Robert the Beautiful. No, I don't either. <laughs> That's a black thing. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> so, ego. But we, we can't prove it, but, you know, we uh-huh. just leave him alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. <laughs> Joe Sather, what are some of the exhibits that you have? Now, you mentioned that the exhibit with women featuring, like, Sarah Rector is going to start in March. What are some mm-hmm. of the other exhibits that you have right uh, now? We have uh, women of NASA. You know, uh, Catherine Goble Johnson just passed away this week mm-hmm. at 101 years old. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, the NASA exhibit is, is on loan, but it will be back. Because, you know, people borrow our exhibits during at libraries and schools and things like that. But they will be back in next week. Um, let's see. We have we have marvelous paintings, actually loaned to us by a personal friend. When he first walked into the museum, when we first started working there, uh, it was cleaned out and the floor was sparkling. He looked around. He said, "Wow, this is really empty." <laughs> we're not an art museum per se. We're a history museum. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So he says. Um, I'm going to loan you some, 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 something. So if you need some wallpaper on these rooms and those magnificent paintings were loaned to us by Ernani Silva. Mm-hmm. He is a, uh, Afro Brazilian artist mm. born in Rio, but he is, um, his ancestry is Nigerian and native Brazilian. His, his, his mother is, is descended from the Tuni tribe in, uh, in Brazil magnificent artist and he has that whole room and um we're blessed to have that because um when any agency that comes in that handles handicapped people mm-hmm. mentally ill uh they get a relief from their stress by looking at these very vibrant colored very um engaging pictures that he paints because he paints people dancing he paints people at mardi gras he's most mm-hmm. famous for his his carnival dancer uh paintings he has several of them and uh it just does something and they bring them in regularly because they 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 the whole expression from sometimes they they walk in and they're looking very blank mm-hmm. but when they get inside they they look at the paintings and then they look at the guys doing capoeira they say oh i can do that i can stand like that and we encourage them you know as long as they don't you know, do anything that's going to make themselves fall. <laughs> sure, understood, right. It's so, it, it, the museum does so much for so many people, it's just amazing. It's just scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you get to witness it. Absolutely, and we do have, you can't forget UB Blake. We have UB Blake oh. Corner, a whole room set aside. Wow. We have UB's 105-year-old piano. No kidding. Of Steinway Grand in perfect condition. Mm. The county has its own, they have their own, it has its own tuner and cleaner who does a regular job of tuning it. Or if someone, if it hasn't been played in a while and it's between tunings, uh, he would tune it before the artist would come in to play it. Mm. 
mm-hmm. it's really uh, a sensational thing to see. And, you know, we actually uh, gave uh, uh, Yubi a tombstone. It's a weird story. We were, I, my husband and I were in the cemetery in Brooklyn, Cypress Hills, and we were looking at the tombstones for a certain family, a family plot. We were looking for the birth and death date so we could start the research. So a grave digger comes over to us and he says, listen, what are you doing? And we explained. He said, well, there's somebody here that's buried. I don't think many black people are aware of it. He said, I was observing that people would come in, um, uh, musicians, they would come in and if they had a saxophone, they would play here. If they had a fiddle, if they had a guitar, if they had a flute, they would play as if paying homage to something over here. Mm. And I went in the office and I asked, well, who's buried at this you know, section letting block. Anyway, finds out that it's, it's UB Blake and he finds out that he's a musician. He said, and nobody, he doesn't have a tombstone. I said, what? He said, no, he was cremated and his, his ashes are set down in, right here. He took us over to the spot. He said, right here is where his ashes are and he's in the plot of his wife's family. I said, well, this is outrageous. Now, the wife's family had what they call a stealer. This thing stands about six foot tall, and it has all the family members' names on it as they were buried there. His name is not there. Well, we left the cemetery, went immediately to a stonemaker and ordered a stone for him. If you ever get the opportunity, Google UB Blake's tombstone. It's the most beautiful, fantastic thing you ever saw. I wanted them, you know, his most famous song was I'm just wild about Harry. Mm-hmm. So we got a black background, black marble, and it has a G cleft, and it has the notes to I'm just wild about Harry, so mm-hmm. that any musician who came to see it, you know, they would know immediately that there's a message there, and that, that we know they're there, <laughs> yeah, and we definitely. know that they're going to read this, and they're going to know who, what we're talking about. You know, it got famous because Harry Truman used it for his uh, campaign song mm-hmm. when he was running for office, when he was running for presidency, and so it went viral at that point. But, uh, yeah, we had that little ceremony, you know, we, we, we bought it, and um, we, we got help from the, from the uh, unions because... Uh, when my brother heard my story, he said, well, you're trying to raise money for that. He said, you know, UB was very wealthy. My brother played in the play UB. He was one of the, the guys that were in the play. Oh. And he said, um, UB was a rich man. He never bothered the unions about his death benefit or anything like that. So just call the unions and let them know he's in an unmarked grave and they'll respond. Well, three of the unions, SAG and Agva and oh, they all... I think it was a couple of thousand dollars, whatever it was, they paid for the tombstone. And it is that's now there in place. And now that the cemetery is aware, they put up a sign and they said, right, that little spot where he is is called Yubi's Corner. <laughs> yeah. And we have a little Yubi's Corner in the museum with a little memorabilia. My brother donated that hat he wore in Yubi. It's this big silver top hat. Nice. And uh, he had a big picture of the cast with UB blowing out the candles on his birthday. So all of that is right there at the museum. And that's one of our permanent exhibits. Because that's excellent. The grand piano is, is, is really, a, 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 it's really amazing to see this beautiful thing, especially when it's open, you know, with the, with the oh, yeah. top up and the bar holding it. And it's really in great. This, in, this, in this, all this majestic glory. Absolutely, absolutely. Joyce, in the time we have left, quickly tell us how we can donate to you monetarily and items, maybe. Well, um, we don't have a good, we don't have a big collections area. Okay. Um, 
if things get evaluated, but, but, you know, actually people can bring to us things that they want to send to the Smithsonian. They have everything, you know, they have space and all. Mm-hmm. So usually uh, we, we attended a meeting of the uh, Smithsonian people at the Brooklyn Museum, and uh, they made us a, a repository. In other words, people could bring it to us, and we would mail it to the museum for them uh, because we actually don't have a lot of space for collection. Gotcha. And actually, most of our stuff is telling the story, telling mm-hmm. the story. Understood. But donations as far as money? They can donate to the museum. They can just send a check or something like that. Or I think we have a donate button on the website. We have children who learn coding and, and robotics. Mm-hmm. And as one of their assignments this spring, they're going to design our web page for us. Excellent. And it's going to be, what do you call it, virtual reality. Ooh, that's going to be great. You can walk through <laughs> yes, the museum at home. Yeah. So the, they do have a donate button that is or will be on the website where people can hit the donate button and go through like a PayPal or something like that. I don't know how it works, but mm-hmm. they can donate that way. There's a small admission, $5 to come into the museum. And uh, if they want like a docent-led tour, then it's $8 per person. But we also have video. We have about 400 videos. And they're all about history and, 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 you know, black history, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they take a tour plus the video, then it's $10. But uh, basically, that's, that's about all we, we muster up. <laughs> Listen, Joyce, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of great information that you've got mm-hmm. there. And once again, it's the African-American Museum of Nassau County. It's located at 110 North Franklin Street, Hempstead, New York. And if you want to get any information, hours. Uh, all the other things that we've talked okay. about, it is at uh, the aamuseum.org. They can have a oh, telephone please. number as well. Yes. 516-572-0730. And that's Wednesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. until 5. Josetta Pierce, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks for uh, taking us through the labor of love that you and your husband has put together, who, by the way, is a history guy himself, being the first African-American police officer out in Freeport. Mm-hmm. Back in the 60s. So, you know, you're living history and you're bringing (laughs) history to us. And we thank you for giving us a couple of minutes this morning. And thank you for talking to me today. That's great. Thank you. My pleasure. We'll talk soon. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening. We'll join you this evening on the Larry Hardesty Show that follows our NBA coverage during the week on ESPN New York tonight and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my incredibly talented all-world producer, Mr. Ray Santiago, I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues right here on 98.7 ESPN New York.